0: On The Job Francis Leach. It's On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Francis Leach with you. Hope you're well. I hope you had a good weekend. This thing didn't happen by accident, by the way, the weekend. It's not like the sun coming up and then dipping in the afternoon and then there's a weekend. Like, it's not a force of nature. It actually had to be campaigned for and demanded and a lot of people made sacrifices so that we who are lucky enough to have jobs, could have a weekend and do the stuff that we love to do. It has a history, and its history is a union history, and that's what we're going to do today with our favourite, our favourite Labour historian, the one and only Dr Liam Byrne.
1: This is On The Job with Francis Leach. Dr Liam, welcome back to On The Job. G'day, Francis. Great to be here once again.
0: How much do we love the weekend?
1: So much. So much, Francis. <laughs> uh, we were recording on a Monday morning, so especially right now.
0: <laughs> it's funny because I was looking over the last couple of weeks and there's been a bit of a talk about uh, you know people getting back to the weekend. If you're living in a part of Australia which has uh, all four seasons, not just the dry and the wet, uh, the sun coming out and people enjoying the weekend again – and I spoke to my dad, and he reminded me that there was a time when he had to work on Saturday mornings. Yeah. And he remembers other people having to work all Saturday. Yeah. And the weekend wasn't a thing. There was a half day on a Saturday and maybe Sunday when nothing was open, and <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't as much fun. So I thought, there must be a history to the weekend. I reckon Dr. Liam knows about this.
1: Well, thanks, for asking. I'm always glad to be here, <laughs> have an opportunity to talk and show my own age and my uh, interest. But that's right. I mean, it's one of those things which – I know certainly. Growing up, I was never taught in high school that the weekend came from something. Certainly, wasn't told that it came from the actions of the union movement. It was just presumed. It's always there. It's something that you know. It's just always been around. But it just simply is not the case. And as you say, like the reality of most working lives before the 1940s was that people would regularly expect uh, and would work on Saturdays. And I've just mentioned full or part day, and often they would work more than eight hours a day during the week as well. So it's a far longer and more you know, substantial commitment to working life than subsequently was campaigned for and won by the union movement. But as you mentioned, sort of once again, has actually increasingly been taken away from us.
0: Now, there's a famous quote that you shared with me from the then president of the Chamber of Manufacturers, C.N. McKay, who called the weekend, quote, "an an unnecessary and dangerous experiment, end quote. Wow, what a fun guy he must have been.
1: Yeah, I wonder what he talks about at parties. Also, you've just got to point out that a lot of the time in this sort of period is that I don't think that many of the employer representatives were going into toil on their Saturdays. So, there is a certain element here where, uh, you know, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Is that the saying? I don't know where I got that from. Good for the goose, good for the gander. Is that a thing?
0: We'll go with that. I think it is.
1: Okay. Well, hopefully nobody will write in angrily and sort of condemn my use of that colloquialism, which is just randomly comes to me. I don't think I've ever said it before, but I decided this was the moment to bring it out. But this is, you know, part of a long history as well of big employer organizations, I should say, opposing even the most basic demands to make workers' lives better. And usually on the same basis of saying that this is going to be, you know, it's an unnecessary uh, it's dangerous, and the danger there is supposedly to the economy and the idea that you know everything is going to collapse, going to crumble if workers don't have to go in for half a day on Saturday.
0: Mm, sounds familiar—the uh, the sky is falling, chicken little argument for any uh, economic reform that benefits workers. So we're celebrating the 75th anniversary of the weekend in 2022. So we've got a marker there. So take us back to 1947. I think my maths is not—it's not 47. 1947.
1: Yeah, 1947. Uh, I had to check it twice <laughs> with a calculator because my maths isn't there either. But <laughs>
0: take us back to 1947, and what what was? the state of play and where did the change start to come from? What was the campaign like?
1: Well, so 1947, you're two years after the Second World War, uh, which is really important to keep in mind because what had happened in the early 20th century is off the back of the eight-hour day victories, which took place in the 20th century. In 1856, workers in Melbourne to Sydney won the eight-hour day. But- in the 19th century, workers won the eight-hour day in Melbourne and Sydney, and in that, they led to a series of other campaigns for a shorter working day in other industries. A lot of unions actually were established based off this campaign, like a really, really pivotal and fundamental part of our movement. And what was happening was that they were campaigning for the right for what we'd call the work-life balance today, for the ability to be seen as more than machines, more than the work that they do, and to have a, a right to a life outside of work. And so that's fundamentally what the eight-hour day campaign was about. For the early 20th century, there's a number of campaigns which would have reduced the working week from 48 hours to 44. And this was a real up and down sort of affair. Like it would, uh, the union movement would win it somewhere, then it would be taken away from us. So like quite regularly, um, these sort of things happen. It was a real, real battle about what the working week was going to look like. Come to the 1930s and the Second World War, the union movement is increasingly arguing for the 40-hour week, which is 40 hours over five days. So two days free, which is, would be the weekends. Now, then the Second World War erupts. Uh, and for the duration of the Second World War, the union movement... Put aside a number of our demands on the basis of contributing to the war effort. So it was a very clear idea that if we're going to win the war, we're going to need to sacrifice. So that's what we'll do. But once the war was won, uh, which it was in 1945, there's this real pent up demand for people who sacrificed so much to win that war, to support the war effort, to get these basic rights that would make their working life better in the new era that was being promised. And fundamental to that was the idea of the 40 hour week with two days not where you not no longer be at work, so getting rid of that Saturday work, and so that was the genesis of the forty hour uh, campaign, which is the weekend
0: and at a time when the uh, the Curtin government was in power, so a more sympathetic ear to the demands of a forty hour weekend, and of course the Chifley government following on from that was that pivotal that sort of coming together of a a labor government built off the back of support from the labour movement and the demands for change?
1: Oh, absolutely. And Curtin, as opposition leader, had promised to implement the 40-hour week in 1937. It's actually one of the things that the Australia had signed up to an international labour organisation standard about it. And so he was going to use, a sort of basically say, because we have this treaty that we need to do that. But, of course, by the time he became prime minister, Australia was at war. So that a lot of those things, again, were put on hold because of the dire need to maintain the war effort. But the other thing that Curtin did during the war was that he promised that after the war was won, the sacrifices would be redeemed, I guess, by creating a new era that would be far more just and equal than the one that had come before. Because, of course, just before the war was the Great Depression. So that's what a lot of people's experience was economic calamity and then war. You know, it's an incredibly tough time. So Curtin promised that, you know, things would be better. We've all come together. We're all getting through the war effort together. So what we'll do is we'll keep that spirit after the war and we'll build a better Australia. Unfortunately, Curtin dies in 1945, so he doesn't get to, tragically, he doesn't get to live to see that. But then, as you mentioned, Chifley's uh, government then sort of maintains it and begins to institute what was known as post-war reconstruction. And a lot of that was based on um, the fundamental part of that was full employment. So the idea that the government had a responsibility to create the conditions to allow everybody to have a job. One of the things that that sort of ensured as well was that there was a relative change in the balance of power between capital and labour, by which I mean before the war, big business basically just saw workers as, you know, people who sold the ability to work on the labor market. So they commodified workers. They just saw us as, the, you know, as a work that we could do. But after the war, that balance had shifted because there was full employment. It meant that it was harder to treat workers as disposable, harder to make workers sort of kind of go this dog-eat-dog competition for each job and that set conditions for a union sort of renewal and the ability to actually demand some basic fundamental rights that would make life better because things weren't just weighted totally against workers as they had been beforehand.
0: So how did the campaign start after the war to make sure that there was a proper weekend for workers, a 40-hour week and Saturday, Sunday for rest, leisure and family life? Well,
1: it's pretty incredible. So after the war, you see these strikes taking place in a number of different industries once employers and the government refused to give the really basic increases been in wages and conditions and so on that was being requested by working people so one of the big demands at this time of course was the 40-hour week and so in this period there's basically there's mass campaigns there's even the threat by the actu of national industrial action over it which in the end that we didn't have to take but you know it's it's a huge thing to be you know sort of putting on the table there's a lot of campaigning to government because while the chiefly government was you know very good for workers rights in lots of ways they were actually a bit obstructionist on the 40-hour week for um Various slightly complicated reasons, but meant that the Institute did have to try and push them because they were trying to get through all these other industrial relations reforms at the time. And it was also definitely undertaken within the court, which existed for the industrial tribunal, which is known as the arbitration court. And so this was this incredible sort of you know, active public advocacy that went for just over a year and a half from 1946 to September 1949, which involved advocates, which involved hundreds of witnesses being brought forward giving exhibits all this sort of stuff which is this like massive massive sort of social debate that was taking place about whether or not the weekend should be introduced
0: so this is before the era of facebook and tiktok and other digital campaigning tools so are we talking lots of mass meetings lots of town halls lots of marches
1: yeah. Oh, absolutely. All those things. It's a, uh, it's a real shame that TikTok didn't exist because it'd be quite wonderful to see, <laughs> people, you because know, a lot of at you know, a time uh, back in the 1940s, you would see people in quite well-pressed suits and so on, you know, doing this sort of like public advocacy. So it's a little part of me that would really, really love to see campaigning in that kind of, you know, in top hats and so on, but uh, on the employer side, not the union side. But it's one of the things that the way that the union movement works, of course, is that whenever there's something that's done in a courtroom, behind that is worker organisation and there's all the you know, union members taking action and getting active. So you can't have something like the you know, demands have you know, totally changed the way work is done in your working week without that getting social support. And it's the union movement during its greatest strength to do that, which is its members. And so you know, there's a culture of education, a culture of argument, a culture of debate in workplaces all across Australia because there were strong union members who were committed to it, who were going out there and making the argument about that it was possible, why it was a good thing, and why action could make it happen. And
0: why wouldn't it wouldn't seek the economy like employees were claiming and still claim whenever there's, as we said, an attempt to try to improve the lot of workers. It ultimately ends up in the Arbitration Court, which is also a very unique beast uh, mm. relative to Australia's uh, industrial history and worker history. What did the Arbitration Court decide and what sort of uh, findings did they have that we can sort of look at now that underpinned the right to a weekend?
1: Well, you can look at the uh, their rulings. They're all available in public libraries if anybody really, really wants to read a whole bunch of legalistic jargon on the weekend, which unfortunately is what I do for a significant amount of my weekends. <laughs> because I'm a giant nerd and I find that fun. That's what my leisure time is. But one of the things that was really, really interesting at the time was that one of the employer lawyers, so they, you know, the people who would be hired by the big employer groups to go and make their case at the arbitration court, he referred to the ACTU's case for the 40-hour week for the weekend as being based on uh, sentimental and philosophical considerations. I really loved that quote because it's one of those things where he thought that was an insult But I actually think it's really lovely, this sort of idea that what the union movement was trying to say and what it was articulating was, yes, an economic case, absolutely. And there was arguments about productivity and there was arguments about the introduction of new machines and new methods of work during the war meant that the economy was more productive. So, of course, you could absorb this production and work time. That was you know, an economic argument the union movement made. But underneath that, there's that bigger argument which exists as well, which is that working people are more than the work that we do and we have a right to a life outside of the workplace. We shouldn't be reduced to the status of machines. We should have the ability to do all the things that we want to do in our time, whether it's nerding out at the state library over old arbitration court records, going to the football, you know, going to a place of worship, just spending time with family today, Netflixing, whatever – This is, on one hand, a sentimental and philosophical philosophical consideration, but life includes sentimental and philosophical consideration. You know, our life is not just the economy. Our life is what we live. So did the
0: economy collapse? Did it all fall apart as uh, the employers were saying it might? There would have been some, I I reckon, some absolutely hysterical and uh, crazy claims by employer groups about what was going to happen. Uh, What were they and did it unfold?
1: In short, no. The (laughs) economy did not implode. Uh, And, of course, there was economic difficulties coming out of the war, um, as you'd expect. But this was actually the post-war era, which was one where it was a real attempt to bring together different sections of Australian society to work cooperatively in a way that they hadn't during the Great Depression and otherwise. And the government drove that. They were prepared to invest. They were prepared to involve unions as active decision makers to help, uh, you know, create a different sort of economy than what had come before. Which we've
0: kind of seen, again, with the Job Summit and uh, the relationship that the ACTU is building with the new Labor government. So there's a... Well, I mean, let's face it, the ACTU, Sally McManus, Michelle O'Neill, and the movement have basically, uh, once again centered themselves at the center of economic discussion because of the way the union movement galvanized the community during the pandemic. So that history continues, doesn't it? In different circumstances, but the you know the the same tune rings true, doesn't it? That you know, yeah. the, the unions and uh, workers getting together and acting collectively. When the chips are down, that's where the rubber hits the road. How many more analogies can I fit into? This? <laughs> in, can, into can you include that?
1: the term "what's good for the goose is good for the gander"? Or when whatever the gander hits the road
0: <laughs> and the rubber is something with the goose. But anyway, Francis, that's the point. such a
1: you know such a significant point that you make. There's actually a really long history in Australia of when things get tough, the union movement, you know, working people, which is what the union movement is. Coming together for the common good. Like, this is something which happens over and over and over again in our history. And the reason why that's not talked about more is because ideological warriors over the last 30 years have decided to take an incredibly aggressive anti worker approach, which has meant bashing unions everywhere they possibly can and trying to write out this history. But the reality is, in the post war era, is that unions bought into that. And, you know, a significant amount of the employers as well, should be said, did buy into trying to create a different economy than the one that existed before, a less combative one. And the result of that, underpinned by full employment and government investment, was consistent economic growth for 30 years, like a sustained period of economic growth which demonstrated that not only did the world not collapse uh, when they introduced the weekend, but actually over the period that followed, Australia continued to grow and continued to be productive because, funnily enough, treating working people decently and allowing working people to do things such as restore themselves after a hard week's work Good, like it actually helps economically, and the arguments that the ACTU made about the facts that you know there've been changes in the way production was organised, different machines, different sort of things during the war, and that would sustain, that would allow the economy to absorb the reduction in work hours was true. I mean, that that was proven over that sort of period that came. Like that wasn't coming out of one of the employer groups said it was Alice in Wonderland logic, but it wasn't it was just a statement of the economic reality. And the reason why unions knew that and were aware of that was because union members on the work floor who are the experts in the work that they do were able to feel Explain this and knew this knowledge this was a reality of their life they knew what was happening they knew the productivity was increasing because they were the ones who were doing it
0: what was happening around the rest of the world at this time so Australia we've talked about this in the past Dr. Liam that Australia and the union movement in this country was often at the forefront of systemic change that then sort of found its way into other jurisdictions around the world as the labour movement internationally also was pushing for for similar things were we ahead of the curve when it came to establishing a 40 hour week and a bona fide weekend
1: no there was examples elsewhere. And pretty much by this period, once you start to get into the 1940s, a lot of that role that you mentioned of Australia played in terms of industrial relations as being really on the forefront had begun to recede and a lot of other countries had begun to catch up to us. So one of the things that in that sort of era, I mean, you think this comes after the New Deal, for instance, in America, which actually really just sort of took America from nowhere in terms of labour rights to really being a trendsetter. Um, But you know, one of the things that Australia was very influential in at this time was actually the policy of full employment. And Stuart McIntyre, who was a, a wonderful Australian historian who unfortunately passed away last year, he wrote this defining book on the post war experience. And he talks about what it was referred to as the positive approach, which is basically Australians, um, members of you know, the union movement, of course, particularly the Labor government, made a really, really strong argument internationally about the need for full employment to be the basis of everybody's policymaking and so use that as a way to make sure that economies were actually building off each other like, and not reducing themselves to the zero sum game that we'd seen during the Great Depression. And so, in that regard, actually, Australia did play this really positive role and propelling this sort of idea about full employment as being the basis of economic policy in developed countries around the world. But a lot of the stuff that we'd seen previously, so you think, for instance, at this time, this is when the National Health Service is being built in Britain. Australia didn't have a similar service for 30 years until after that. So, a lot of the sort of, you know, the drive to change things. And there's no uh, sort of like mystery as to what happens in 1949 that began to end sort of like status as being one of the great examples of progressive reform, which is the election of the Menzies government and the long era of conservative rule that sort of followed, which actually really stymied those sort of energies.
0: So there are other battles to come when it comes to working hours, the shape of the working week and workers' rights. What are some of those other key battles that uh, bring us to today?
1: Well, some of the big ones that followed after this was that there was the campaigns to extend annual leave. Uh, Of course, you know, the right to life outside the workplace includes things like the right to get away, go on holiday um, and so on. So annual leave at this time generally is about one week. It got expanded in the 60s and the 70s into three weeks and then four weeks, which is incredibly important. There's also other forms of leave and right to a life outside of the workplace, which is often not considered in the same way as as the weekend, but things like maternity leave, which began to be a right that was afforded from 1979. In the late 70s and the early 80s, there's also a big, big campaign that's taking place, particularly by the Metal Workers Union, to reduce the working week down to 35 hours. Uh, And a lot of the arguments that they made actually were quite similar to what was being made for the 40-hour week. Ultimately, they weren't successful in winning 35 hours, but they were successful in reducing the work week down to 38, which over the years to follow became the new general standard. So it's really, really significant. Again, that involved strikes, that involved mass meetings, that involved huge, huge public uh, demonstrations, a lot of intellectual work. So a lot of sort of like combating the arguments of the employers who, funnily enough, suggested that the entire economy would collapse if they had the 38-hour week. Very, very much a replay of these earlier sort of situations. In other industries, more specific industries, there's been reduction of work uh, time as well. But what we've seen since then, unfortunately, is that a lot of that momentum has been lost.
0: Yeah, well, that's one of the things that you mentioned to me before we did the podcast is that the Battle for the Weekend is still going on because of the nature of the way work has changed, uh, mm. the 24-hour uh, the, the economy yeah. and cycle in which we live, the casualization and, uh, and labour hire work that people now have to do. And we know that about 6% of the population is working more than one job at a time mm. to even get close to putting food on the table. So the idea of the weekend, in some sense, is under threat once again.
1: Yeah, that's right, and you know other aspects you think about what happened at penalty rates to a significant chunk of uh, different industries a few years ago, where you know the, the recognition that the weekend was important, that it had a social utility, and so you get paid more when you you work on it. Like that was reduced for a large number of workers. Like we see that you know so many workers say either can't get enough hours to work or are massively working over the hours that they're supposed to be doing anyway. Like all the sort of you know, the historic markers that we set down are under attack. And I don't think it's a coincidence that that happens at the same time as we've had that aggressive neoliberal sort of attack on unionism in, uh, more generally. It's because these things that we said to begin with don't just fall from the sky. They're conscious policy choices which are made to allow these environments to occur and it was the conscious action of working people in their unions that won the weekend, that won the reduction in hours and other circumstances. And it's when unions are weaker, when workers find it harder to come together in their, their own organisations, which is what unions are, and take action. And all the laws that we've seen over the last few decades have lent to make it more difficult for workers to do that. Then things like the weekend are grand historic achievements are under threat, or you know potentially actually being lost. Which again is one of the sort of examples, uh, one of the, sorry lessons from history. Is it just because you've won something doesn't mean you've won it forever. You do need to protect it. You do need to keep pushing it further and finding new ways to advance what you're trying to do.
0: Well, Dr. Liam, happy 75th birthday to the weekend. The struggle goes on as it always will. And uh, thank you for being on the pod. It's always great to have you on uh, and we'll catch you very soon.
1: Thanks Francis, look forward to it.
0: Dr Liam Byrne a Labor historian here at the ACTU with the history of the Australian weekend. Thank you for listening uh, don't forget to give us a rating on whatever platform you're using. We love your stars and your reviews it helps us uh, fight the war of the algorithm and find our way up the charts and more people can find the information and the inspiration and of course as Dr Liam points out the best way to help your working life and just as importantly that of others is to join your union. Australianunions.org.au is where you go to do that. My name is Francis Leach, and I'll catch you on the next edition of On The Job. Bye for now.